welcome back to the Free Willing Podcast. I've taken the microphone back from Tilda and Amy, although Tilda's here. Hello. Hello. Freshly back from worlds, the only worlds that matter to me at the moment. Bold take. <laughs> we don't have Amy, unfortunately. She is with Sam in Belgium, so she'll be back next week. And we also don't have Lauren because she has a real job, but Gracie is here. <laughs> Apparently, I also have a real job, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> I can always make time for you guys. Technically, we all have real jobs, but this is my real job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty cool job. It's not bad. It's not bad. But mm. so we've got, yeah, we've got quite a redu- reduced crew this week, especially considering we've had full house uh, lately. But We've got a bunch to talk about mountain bike world championships. There's been a bunch more transfers. The classic Lorient Ag something or other. Uh, it's it's a very long name. I when I sent in the preview to Kaylee to review, he was like, "For fuck's sake!" <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that, and then also the CMAC Ladies Tour is coming up. Before we dive into all of that, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. Thank you so much to Zwift for sponsoring this episode. If you are following along with the men's Vuelta a España, which I mean, men's racing, who follows that? But if you are, Jay Vine is killing it over there. And he is one of the winners of the Zwift Academy. Uh, the Zwift Academy is this awesome program that Zwift has set up where you can go from virtual riding into the real world tour Peloton. It's been running in the women's Peloton for quite a few years at this point and is going on right now. You don't have to want a world tour contract to want to participate in the Zwift Academy program. There's a bunch of really awesome workouts on there. There's group rides. You can find like-minded people in the virtual space. And it's really fun to kind of go outside your comfort zone and test your legs a little bit. So head on over to Zwift, check out the Zwift Academy and all of the workouts and rides that they have to offer. It's extensive. And thank you so much to Zwift for supporting not only this podcast, but women's cycling and, I mean, men's cycling as well. I'm definitely going to be trying the Zwift Academy workouts this year. I really enjoyed it last year. I didn't finish it last year and I probably won't finish it this year, but it's a great <laughs> way to get back on the bike. <laughs> you could, you should finish it and you should try to go for a world tour contract. I feel <laughs> yeah. like you have talent, you know? Oh. No, that would never have been my pathway back into the sport, into the sport in the first place. Like I've got a pretty good engine, but I don't have a Zwift engine. Like my, Mm. my uh, talents were in real life racing. So (laughs) I would not have done so good in Zwift Academy, but I think the people that do it are awesome. And I think it's an amazing opportunity. And I've said it before, it's, it's a golden opportunity for people outside of Europe to get to Europe. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a lot of the time the people who win the Zwift Academy are, are well, Australians or Kiwis. And we've talked before a lot on the podcast about how hard it is for people who are not um, in like the UK, Europe bubble to get across the ocean and be able to participate. All right, let's chat first. The Mountain Bike World Championships, Tilda. Pressure's on. What happened? Yeah, I'm without my mountain bike buddy to do this. So this is this is pressure. Um yeah, I guess the main story was the the cross country was just dominated by the French. Um, which was kind of expected, not just because they have 
some excellent riders in the cross country field, but also it was home worlds and it doesn't come around that often. Obviously, France are a huge mountain biking nation, but they only get the chance to race in France maybe once or twice a year. So to have worlds in France, it was always going to be the one. Um, it started on Friday night with Pauline Ferron Prevot winning the short track. Um, that's only the second time that short track has been in worlds. Uh, last year, won by Sina Fry. So yes, Pauline just kind of put the hammer down on that one and won. It was a very exciting race. I think those short 20 minute races are really um in my opinion one of the best sides of mountain biking because they're just from from the go exciting um a bit different from watching like a three-hour road race right yeah the short track i think might be my favorite event because it's like it's like a criterium on dirt and it was it's just so exciting to watch and pauline like rode away with it it wasn't really it it didn't like come down to anything. She just kind of rode away, which you go into the cross country. It's a little bit of the same situation. It's kind of funny that like cross country is already really spectator friendly. Like it's such a great sport to watch. And the, the short track is just like a little version of that. So it's, they've got like a two for one in that weekend. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I think it really I don't know how much you could tell from it from the broadcast, but yeah, just the support that was there for every single race, including all the junior races, all the under 23 races was just incredible because it's great to come out and watch a sport like that. Um, and so, yeah, so then on Sunday we had the, started the day with the under 23 cross country uh, race, which again was just dominated from the go really by Lean Berkier, who has been yeah, the best ride, I would say, all season, winning a lot of World Cups. And it probably wasn't much of a surprise that she went and did the same thing on Sunday. Um, but it was a huge result for her to really kind of bring that home. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she does next season because the top five under 23 riders of each season, based on World Cup rankings, can choose for the next year whether they race under 23 or um, elite. So she kind of will have that choice and yeah we've seen some step up early and some carry on in the under 23s because yeah you get to win a little bit more maybe and uh take some more time to develop so yeah it'll be interesting to see what she does in that and again it wasn't it wasn't much of a race uh she just kind of went um and it was really strung out kind of kind of from the get-go she wasted no time in setting off uh yeah to take that victory in front of the home crowd and then Sunday afternoon Pauline Ferron Prevot did it again, just again, pretty much from the get go, attacked. She briefly had Yolanda Neff following her, but quickly rode away from her and won by a pretty healthy margin in the end. She, yeah, stayed away. It never looked to be in doubt that she was going to take the double. Um, it's a big thing in mountain biking to have that perfect weekend of winning on the Friday and Sunday, but to do it at Worlds at home is just another level. Um, the race behind for the medals was a bit more interesting and closely fought. Um, after kind of initially dropping back, Yolanda Neff battled back through the field to take second in the end. Um, and Luana Lecomte, kind of one of the pre-race favourites, had yeah a bit of a funny race. She kind of never followed the acceleration to start with um, and then raced at her own pace through the rest of the race a bit more to come back up for fifth, I think. Um, so yeah, I think she might be a little bit disappointed with that, but 
France in general kind of they got they got their home win and it was very dominant we don't necessarily see I don't know it's, it's not uncommon to see a rider take it on from the start like that in mountain biking cross country um but it was a pretty bold move to go so early on in kind of a 90 minute race but I think having the home crowd and knowing that you'd have that support every lap and just getting to enjoy that moment I think Pauline couldn't really pass that up so yeah she's she's world champion again adding to her long list of, of world champion wins and so that was the cross country pretty amazing <laughs> yeah it, it really is and it's funny how uh when it came to the men's race so much of the um narrative was about Tom Pidcock could he win all these titles at once and you think well Pauline from Provo has won all those titles at once and it I think people might have said back then that, oh, well, women's cycling just wasn't strong enough back then or something. So it was easier to win everything, but it's never easy to win everything. And I think she's proving year on year. She obviously focuses now more on the mountain biking, but she's proving every year that she has those achievements because she is an amazing rider and not because of the field being not that strong or anything like that. She had, she's had a real battle on her hands all season and she's not kind of just dominated every race but she she can pull it out when it matters yeah I think her experience is really showing now like the last few years that she's you can see that she's picking and choosing when she wants to peak rather than trying to Mm -hmm. be good the whole time because she's learned from experience that you can't do that and she's had injuries and some illness here and there and like I think she made it quite clear this year that her intention was that Worlds was the goal and she sat out those couple of World Cups beforehand and she wanted to attack early she was on a hardtail I don't know how many riders were on hardtails but I did not see that many and she was very calculated about how she wanted her race to go and she she did it from the start it was really interesting watching the start as well like she wasn't actually on in the front bunch of riders after the first few hundred meters and she kind of just zipped back through them whereas the two other French riders were at the front from the start and that you could tell that they were already like in the red and she kind of just rides past everyone making it look so easy and she's got such an interesting riding style I don't know if you guys noticed as well she just looks so different on the bike compared to other people I don't know what it is if it's like long femurs or something but she just sits the bike a bit differently and she's quite distinctive and it's it's she's good to watch though and she was still doing like a lot of the a lines and doubles and stuff on a hard tail so I found that quite interesting as well she's such an interesting rider because yeah like she's won all of the world titles cross road mountain bike but she had a few years there where she was trying where women cycling was on the up on on every front and she was trying to keep doing it all and she really kind of blew up a bit when she was riding for canyon stram and had to like really dial it back and kind of take focus into just one aspect of the sport. And she chose mountain biking. I think she has a lot of, a lot more fun with it than she does with road or cross. And it is like a lot, a lot different. I mean, it's a lot more centrally focused versus like a team environment. I think that she can just kind of do her own thing and it really suits her as a person. And I, I mean, I think like for her specifically, she had a really rough run with the Olympics and to take a home world championship. I mean, with all of the results, all of the world titles, all of the everything, everything that she's accomplished in her career, this one will be special because of the roller coaster that she's been through the last couple of years. And I mean, the the 
smile that she had on her face on the podium when everybody was singing the French national anthem and she was wearing the rainbow jersey was pretty much like, yeah, that's like a core memory, core life memory. (laughs) For sure. I wanted to talk about the under 23s a little bit more, actually. And Matilda, I'm interested to hear your thoughts of like, it's different in like in road cycling, we don't have an under 23 category full stop, no races really, and no world championships. Um, and that's going to be quite topical in a couple of weeks' time. And it has been this year because of the, the world championship situ- <laughs> situation this year. Um, but you you said that the top five in under 23s get, get the choice to go into elite. So that means that they kind of have to race under 23s until they're good enough to, you know, leave because they're old enough or, or mm. to have the choice to go and you know, is it a good thing that they actually forced to stay in under 23s and, and the ones that do have a choice, it's it's maybe better for them to stay longer? Yeah, it's an interesting one because um, I think it is good that there's kind of, it's not just up to you as a rider when you, when you join the elite ranks. You have to kind of, yeah, either actually be old enough or prove that you're good enough if you're, if you're still below the age limit. And I think... I would say it probably is a good thing because I think cycling has a little bit of an obsession with the elite being like the pinnacle of everything. And obviously it is the top level, but that doesn't mean that juniors and under 23s aren't important or aggressive racing. And it, and it is, you know, especially with mountain biking where the the under 23 races are, kind of put on the same level as the elite races they're on the same weekend they're on the same course they're just a little bit shorter I think it's it's no they're not like a lesser thing to race and they race them just as competitively and the world cup standings are just as important um and so yeah I think it is good that kind of you have to take that time and it it is just good for development isn't it and I think if you had a rider like Lean Berkier who's probably talented enough to get round the elite races but she wouldn't have any kind of leadership chances in probably whatever team she was in. And she wouldn't be, you know, if she'd raced these worlds as elite, she'd be third, fourth in the hierarchy behind uh, Pauline and Loana and um, the other French riders. So, yeah, I think it's kind of good that they are, they have to have that pathway to learn the race craft but also just you know going around world cups and the the life that comes with that and yeah learning to kind of take on the pressure of of being a leader and stuff and then you kind of get to make that decision about what's going to be best for you and you have to weigh up different things because you know the riders that do go into the under 23 early I don't think any of them go and immediately start winning like we've had Mona Mitovana this year moved up early and she's been she's been doing really well, but also she's been having kind of her head kicked in in some races, and it is hard to make that step because the the level in the elite racing is really high. And if you look at the ages of the riders, they're also, you know, in their late twenties, early thirties. If you're stepping up, you're not you're not stepping up at twenty two to race with riders who are twenty five. You're stepping up at twenty two to race with riders who are twenty nine, thirty, who've been doing this for years and years. So I think as an under 23 rider, being able to get that experience under your belt before you join the really, really experienced riders is, yeah, really a good thing. But I think it is also good that they have the option that if they have proved themselves, they can move up if they want to. 
I feel like this is a great segue into one of the topics that I have on the run sheet today, which is uh, Gracie might have a little bit of insight or thoughts on this, but the Australian world's team was announced for the road and they opted not to bring any U23 riders, which obviously we've talked about it before, but the U23 category for the first time ever in women's cycling is going to be combined with the elite women. And I think that we can all say that that is a daft decision because we want to see them with their own individual race. And that was what Australian cycling cited as one of the reasons that they will not be fielding any U23s in in their home world championships. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a mess, this situation. But I actually have a bit of an unpopular opinion in that I'm not totally against the under-23 category being part of the racing this year. I completely agree that it should be its own separate race, but because that was taken off the table, I just think that it's still a step, even though it's, I don't know, arguably it's a it's a shit step, but I don't know. I think that it's still an opportunity to learn, um, for the UCI to learn, for federations to learn, for the under-23s to have a moment. I know it's really complicated, but Welzers in Australia this year, can you think of any federations that would have been able to afford taking two women's teams? Like I know they take two men's teams, but it's that's a whole bunch of other riders that you've got to take and a lot of um, federations already struggle with the cost for uh, world championships that are so far away. So, yeah, and in terms of the Australian team, I do have a bit of a, a thought that maybe that I think there was two appeals before the team was fully announced and I, I think maybe one or two of those were p- potentially under 23 riders who thought, you know, well, why would you take so so and so when you could take me and I've got a better chance of bringing home a jersey? So I think that's a really interesting argument and probably a lot of countries are facing a similar argument from riders of like, well, of course, the elite jersey is more valuable and you're never going to wear the under-23 jersey any races yet um, for the season. And it, it definitely impedes on the race tactics and the dynamic, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but arguably, what if your country has a better chance to be on the podium in under-23 than it is in elite? I think that's the big question and I think that's the question that Australia maybe decided not to answer because they didn't like the answer. I think maybe they have a better chance with some of our amazing under-23 riders to bring home that jersey than the elites. We have an amazing team for the elites too, but when you you see our lineup stacked up against the Dutch lineup, you're like, well, that's still pretty hard. The odds aren't great. It's not that I don't believe in our women. It's just it's just odds, you know, like I find that really interesting. So, yeah, I think that they were just trying to make that statement, but I just don't think that some of the parties were talking to each other. I was part of some of the the course planning for Worlds. Um, I didn't plan the course. So just saying that for everyone listening, I didn't plan the course. I was just part of the advisory group in terms of um, certain uh, factors of the course and safety measures. Um, but, you know, one of the questions I posed a couple of years ago when I was part of some of these planning processes was, are you going to build a course for an Australian to win? And the answer was no. They wanted to build an interesting course, a course to showcase the area, and they've definitely done that. It's going to look amazing on TV. But in terms of our elite men's and women's teams, the odds are stacked against us to take home a world championship title, and maybe some of our under-23s could have had a better shot. <laughs> 
I mean, looking at the the U.S. team as well that's been announced, they also aren't bringing any U23s, I'm pretty sure. I can't remember how old Skylar Schneider is. I'm Googling it right now. 23. So their team is also, like, for the most part, geared towards the elite title and not the U23. Um, but, I, yeah, I think it's it's such an interesting system this year this race is going to be like we're going to get to see if it actually does like play a huge role in the race tactics having two races in one or if everybody kind of just forgets that there's a u23 going on at the same time except the u23s themselves um but it seems to me that nations are whether they mean to or not making a statement when they are selecting their teams yeah, the USA one really surprised me, especially when you've got Megan Jastrup as kind of an obvious option who's going really well and has been junior world champion and could both do a job for the team and have a good finish herself. Um, so, it, yeah, when teams have this option. I think the thing is that I keep coming back to is that if a federation turned around and said they weren't sending a men's team to the men's under 23, like a big federation, like the, the US, Australia, France, any country like that, you'd be like, what? And people would say they were denying their riders of the chance and all of this. But with the women's, it's like, oh, well, because it's, because it's in the race, it's going to end up like this. And yeah, I think as soon as the idea was floated um, or announced, a lot of us kind of thought, oh, this might be the case that they don't want to um, give up a place in their quota. And it does make sense. Like Gracie says, the elite, the elite Jersey is the big one, but yeah, it does feel like it's maybe going to be forgotten about the race. And I don't know if that kind of sends the right message to people like the UCI who we want to prove that we need an under 23 race, but apparently we're not sending any under 23 riders for the first time. There's going to be a Jersey and it might just be one incidentally by whoever comes across the line first who was young enough um so yeah it will be interesting to see how that plays out and obviously we're basing a lot of this off only a couple of teams announcing but yeah if the big countries like australia and the us are going down that route then it wouldn't be surprising if um other federations do too yeah it's kind of like this fine line between being annoyed because we want there to be an actual race for the u23s and um, kind of like making a stink about the fact that they have combined the two or being like, all right, well, we're going to show you that this is that we deserve it, our own race by making the U23 race an exciting race. It's kind of like, yeah, you can go one of two ways. And I don't know. There's no middle ground to me. Yeah, like I just, I don't know if there's a win, there's no win-win here, but like mm. say the Tour de France, they take a team to support a GC rider and then they have one younger rider there that's allowed to go for the white jersey. I don't really see the difference there between taking a team almost full of elites and, and taking one or two young riders for the experience to race on elite world championships and for the potential that they can get the jersey as well, like just you're not going to take half and half or mostly under 23s. Like I just don't see if you have a big quota, like some of the, like the top five or to the top 10 nations, why you wouldn't just take one under 23 and just kind of sacrifice that spot of of the support rider in the elite race. And, And some of them can be great support riders anyway and still go for the Jersey. And I don't know, it's, I think you'd need to, 
pick your battles sometimes. And, and of course, like this is an important matter and we really want an under 23 race, but this is a situation. It's not going to change. Why not make the most of it? Mm-hmm. That's that glass half full way to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, like, it is also in the Federation's best interest to want to develop riders. Like, you make a good point about sending riders who can have the experience and race and stuff. That is also a win for the National Federation because you have to have the younger generation coming up and, and they're the riders that you're going to be looking at selecting for your elite team next year. And so, yeah, it kind of seems like they're just missing out on a lot of opportunities if it's if it's not not even just to take the win but to kind of yeah improve your younger generation um by not selecting yeah if you've got seven or eight riders you can probably afford to give one spot to another 23 rider in my view at least we've got the tour de lavender the women women's edition of the tour de lavender coming up in the future so there's there is more progress being made in the U23 category for the women i feel like we could well, if she's going, knee Fisher Black. <laughs> For the, well, I mean, I don't know if the course suits her, but anyway, I think we should move on because for sure we will talk about this more as we get closer to Worlds and Lauren is going to be a director there so she can really have some insight into it. Um, but we had... One race over the weekend, the one world tour race over the weekend, the GP de Plouet, Lorient, something. They changed the name. It's really long. Anyone? I'm no? not going to even try. I've got I'm nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I just know. keep why calling it Plouet. Why would you just put a race name that long? Like, come on. I don't know. <laughs> No, it's like, it was ridiculous. And you can't like shorten it when I was writing the preview and also the race report, there's like no way to, to shorten it. Like, because yeah, GP to Plouet is a great name. Petition for them to just stick to GP to Plouet. I think that was the hashtag, wasn't it? Anyway. Yeah, it was the T it was like the race hashtag. Um, so that was over the weekend and it was a super exciting race. I feel like when we get into this part of the season, there's always like this weird shift in the, in the racing where a lot of the top names sit out races this time of year in anticipation of the world championships and GP Plouet in the past has been this like kind of testing ground for world championships. But I think because they're so far away there, there was no Voss Their SD works had a really weird team that they brought. And I think that we're going to see a bit of that at CMAC ladies tour as well, which we'll get into in a bit, but GP Plouet was won by Mavi Garcia. It's her first one day world tour victory. And she was just on fire. I mean, she was attacking over and over. She was the main instigator of the breakaway that formed once they'd hit the final circuits. And it was a new course this year. The last couple of years, they've just done like one circuit over and over. But this year they did like a big circuit down towards the coast and then worked their way back up to the to the regular circuits that are quite hilly. And Mavi attacked multiple times on those circuits and basically just attacked until it was just her and one other rider and then beat Amber Crack in the sprint to the line. Yeah, Mavi yeah. Garcia winning a sprint is not something anyone ever expects, is it? Um, I love but- her salute though. It was a great salute. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, her her final attack that, I mean, they were really close to the line. They were like a kilometer and a half from the finish when her final attack that broke up the group, there was like, I think, eight or nine riders left at that point. And it was so interesting because there had been attack after attack after attack from that group. There was no really clear winner from that group. So the tactics were super interesting coming into the line and basically Mavi just attacked multiple times until there weren't that many riders left and her final attack, no one reacted. I mean, Amber crack was the only one to follow her. And then the rest of the riders in that group, I think it was Anna Shackley was sitting on the front, just kind of like sat up. They didn't, it was kind of like a, one of those age old, just keep going until they deflate and that whole group just like deflated (laughs) yeah it was like one of the few non-attacks and it was the one that worked it was like at least half of the riders in that main final breakaway of the day attacked and it was it was great that last 30k um but yeah it was just within that last 5k there was quite a few really good attacks and then there was a little bit of a lull at about three and a half K. And then just as they'd come under the 2K banner, I think everyone was just looking around and Mavi was actually like one meter ahead of, you know, she was the first rider, but she had a little gap like, and she was just off to the side or or something. I don't know. It was just like this really odd moment where I think she just realized that somewhat no one was directly on her wheel and she kind of just jumped from the front, which is often that doesn't work. (laughs) But I think everyone, (laughs) like you said, Abby, like everyone was kind of like, oh my God, again, like, no, you do it. And that was it. And, and Amber was the only one that was just like, oh no, this is not good. And was I think they were the two strongest riders anyway. I think that uh, I agree that there was no particular head and shoulders above with anyone in the group, but for sure Mavi and Amber were the stronger riders there. And they'd even attacked quite early on, I think 35k to go and were looking quite dangerous. And they always look quite good on the climbs. And and Mavi was definitely the strongest on the climbs, just stringing it out every time the road went up and it just looked so painful for everyone else behind her. I think it was a really well-deserved win. It wasn't a lucky attack. She literally just had better legs and she had lots of attacks and then she just picked that last moment and it worked. Yeah. It's not always that the strongest rider in the race wins the race because obviously bike racing has a lot of tactics involved, but when you're the strongest rider in the race and then you just like make the race your own, then yeah, you can win. And she she was the strongest rider on the day, in my opinion. It's also interesting to see how Mavi Garcia's kind of approach to racing has changed, I think, especially in the last year. Um, I think previously she would be guilty of kind of sitting in a group because she didn't trust her attacks, but also she's admitted that she doesn't have the best sprint. So she kind of gets in these situations where she doesn't want to attack, but she knows she can't sprint for the win. So she sits in a group and gets fourth or fifth and she's one of those riders that kind of last year and the year before was always there but never winning but I think especially since she took that first world to win in Burgos where she kind of just went for it and it stuck I feel like she's had a bit more an injection of confidence in her moves a bit more and we've seen her be a little bit more active and I think once you have that win and you kind of see that a move like that can work um, and that it's all about timing. And if you go at the right time and the peloton are just sitting up for like 30 seconds, then suddenly you've got a lead and you can win the stage. And I think that that's really kind of 
played into her mindset a bit more and she's got this confidence to keep attacking and she doesn't have to just sit there because she's worried that she attacks, she's going to blow up. So I think that's been really good to see because she is such a strong rider. But sometimes I think in previous seasons was not fully kind of harnessing that in the right way. So yeah, to see her attacking multiple times is yeah a new style of racing for Garcia, but it's also good to see it paying off. And I hope that we'll see her racing more actively like that um, a bit more. Yeah, and she announced her um, her move to live extra for next year, which I can't remember which ones we talked about last time because it was two weeks ago. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that this happened afterwards. That she's she's moving to live, and they're a team that really hasn't had any success since they lost Lotto Capecchi. Um, so to pick up Mavi Garcia's a really interesting move, I think, because she's. Basically, she's pretty much the best rider on UAE. Um, and I would think that Liv is a team that has definitely less money than UAE. And maybe, I don't know if she would have signed for them before having this, like this kind of success. Obviously, Burgos was a lot earlier in the season, but pre Tour de France, maybe because, or, or pre Giro, she had such an amazing Giro. It's just a, a I don't know. I don't know really what to make of of her going to live. I think it's a it's great that she's going to have a new atmosphere around her. We'll see how she does with Georgia Bronzini as a director, for example. But the team around her at Live, I don't know how much support she's going to get. Whereas at UAE, she has er- riders like Erica McNaldi and um, uh, Erska Ziegart, like other really strong climbers that can help support her as she continues to get more confidence and I, it will have to see who else live picks up because at the moment they're, they're kind of a classics team that isn't really successful at classics. I do have to correct you. Eska's with back exchange. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) I think I was just like, (laughs) <laughs> I associated her. Yeah, you're right. Um, no, I meant, and Anse and Esteban is also with, because I was just about to say her too. No, no. <laughs> don't listen to anything I have to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. It is an interesting move though. And I'm, I'm interested to see who else they might pick up to bolster some of their climbing support there. But yeah, and she's turning into a, a really great climber. And I, I, I like what Tills was saying of like, it's cool to see her just getting that confidence and realizing how good she is and, 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 and trying things and trying really hard. So hopefully we can see her just doing more of that and she might not need that much support if she can ride as strong as she is, but yeah, time will tell, but someone else that um, I've been interested in, interested in watching is Amber Crack. I don't really know that much about her, but I was quite impressed watching her at the tour of Scandinavia. She kind of stood out to me a little bit because Voss was leading her out for some of the mountaintop sprints and she looked great. Like to, to follow Voss's wheel and to punch over some of those smaller climbs wouldn't have been very easy. So I was kind of like, oh, who's this? Um, and then I think that was a bit of a turning point uh, result for her in Plouet. So I think that she could be a really interesting rider to watch as well uh, next year, potentially. I mean, she's like brand new. She only signed for uh, bike for Yumbo Visma bike exchange. Now my brain's all messed up. <laughs> she only signed for Yumbo Visma last year, but she's, is she the, the speed skater? No, 
I'm Googling her because she's 28 years old. Like she's not a brand new human, but she's brand new to cycling. She's, she's only been on the team these two years. She signed like mid season last year in June. Um, but she doesn't have any, any results prior to 2021. Like her first, her first races on pro cycling stats on a site that I shouldn't have just named is the national championships last year. That's crazy. Yeah. Maybe she was a speed skater. Well, she's certainly racing really well, like physically, but also tactically. Like she, she doesn't look like a, an inexperienced rider by any measure. Like I'm sure she's still learning heaps, but overall, like she looks pretty competent and able to think on the bike as well as, you know, execute with her strength. So yeah, I think that she's, Interesting. I, I looked her up too after the Tour of Scandinavia and was surprised at her age because she looks like a, a an emerging young rider, but she's she's not, but she's still fresh. Oh, she's the rower. Mm, just found that. She's yeah, a rower. Because, uh, yeah, Jumbo Visma has picked up um, also a speed skater mid this season. That's Caroline yeah, Costa Rica or something, I think. Yeah. Yeah, she's rower. the rower. Interesting. It's, you wouldn't think that those that the like rowing translates over to to bikes. This is the we need Lauren. <laughs> it does. Rowing <laughs> rowers do a lot of cross training on the bike, and it's it's quite a similar engine, even though it's a totally different technique. It's um very much they they train very similar to cyclists, maybe slightly less volume and more in the gym, but. The, the physical translation is quite good. And you do see some rowers cross the cycling permanently. Because mm. there's obviously like, there's a lot of speed skaters that cross over to cycling. And then there's a lot of Nordic skiers that cross over to cycling. Yeah. Rowing, rowing but, is yeah. probably a bit more like track cycling, mm. but like more, a little bit more endurance. Like they just have to do really hard efforts that are in that endurance zone of four minutes or more. So like some of them are shorter, some of them are sprint rowers, but yeah, they've got good engines. So no wonder she can climb well and get through a race like that. <laughs> All right. Do you think that's enough about Plue? Yeah. I, <laughs> I didn't watch it. <laughs> I wish Grace Brown won it, but that's okay. She she got third. She still got to stand on the podium. Yeah, she was one of the strongest <laughs> riders in that breakaway for sure. Her and I mean Audrey Cordon Rigo is like such an interesting rider because she's just been chasing a result uh, for so long now, and these are pretty much home roads for her. So you would have, yeah, maybe just like really been cheering for the French national champion at this point. But it the, the breakaway was just so there was a lot of really strong riders in the break that just couldn't kind of make it work. Mm, well, anyway, like she had some good support from Trek to try, but maybe she yeah. might have some more and different opportunities in the future. Speaking <laughs> of the future, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? speaking of the future and Trek Segafredo specifically, they announced like a ton of transfers and extensions last week. One of the main extensions is Ellen Van Dyke, who's obviously one of the core riders on the team and has been on the team since the team formed. So no surprise to see her continuing on with them, especially with the support that they've given her in other areas, like with her hour record and stuff like that. A lot of time spent 
um, optimizing her time trial position and her bike and everything. But they also signed, they've, they've really been lacking this year in strong climbers. Elisa Langeborghini is a great rider, but she's not exactly, she had a really great Giro, but she's not really a climber climber. Um, and with more mountains added to the women's calendar, that was kind of a, one of the areas where they really needed some help. And they signed Amanda Spratt, Brody Chapman and Guy Riolini. So they've got three really strong climbers that they've picked up. I feel like, uh, I don't really know much about the young Italian, but she was incredible on the queen stage of the Giro this year. And then we obviously know Spratt and Brody. It's pretty exciting to see them move to this team. Amanda Spratt's been on bike exchange her entire career. So for her to be in a new environment and kind of get a new, not like more support, but it's just going to be different. So it'll be interesting to see how that helps her. And she's obviously still on the comeback from her iliac artery endofibrosis surgery. So I feel like it's only up for Spratt. And we're obviously all big fans of Brody Chapman. And it'll be interesting to see if she gets more freedom on Trek um, than she has on FDJ. I would imagine so, because they don't, they have riders that are similar to Brody, but I think that they're a team that doesn't exactly like pick one rider unless it's Balsamo. And they're like, a lot of times they're like, okay, let's see where the chips fall and then we'll ride for whoever is having a better day and Brody might benefit from that. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Brody is used in track and if she gets more opportunities. So it's, it's a cool move and it's pretty exciting. I think most riders would be really excited to get signed by Trek. Um, but yeah, I think I was most surprised with um, Spratt's move to Trek um, 11 years with the bike exchange team of all its different names, which is a long time. Uh, I think that would have been a really tough decision for her to make to, to leave and to leave all that loyalty. And I don't know, you, you get really close to the staff and the riders, but I think that she knew that, it, you know, you need to keep growing and learning and she's not done yet in her career. And as you said, she's coming back from something quite serious with that iliac artery surgery. So I think she feels like she's still got a lot to, a lot more to give um, and to, to keep learning from different people, I think is important. So I think it's great that she's been able to make that decision and, and has the opportunity. So I think that, yeah, it would be cool to see if she can, um, you know, use that and, and, hit the refresh button a little bit and just jump up to that next level again, because mentally I think you need that variation and um, I don't know, culture change and just shake things up a bit. So it's, it's definitely not all about your training and all the preparation and all of the technology that goes into it. It's about your head as well. It's about, I don't know, being happy and, and having a bit of change and, and a new challenge so you don't feel complacent or bored or stale. And Amanda's really been on the team through a huge shift. I mean, it used to be basically an all-Australian team, and now it's very international. So she's she's kind of like the, the one um, long-standing rider that's been there for a really long time and seen it go through this change. And I wonder how different the team is now than it was like when you were on it and 
how that has impacted her decision to to look for a new a new home. Yeah, I think that would definitely be a factor. And, you know, I, I do hear things <laughs> that it has changed for the good or good or bad, you know, like, but that's normal. A team that has been alive for that long will go through those life cycles and you can't have the same team culture for that whole time. You'll have elements of it, but it evolves and the characters change and there's good years and bad years and you can't, you know, avoid some of that stuff. So I think for sure that she just knew that her time was up and it wasn't for anything major and nothing you know dramatic happened it was just like okay I think I've done my no I don't want to say done my time because that sounds bad but like I've I've gotten the most out of this that I can and I don't think I can leave any more of a legacy or an impact in this team as a, a leader or a winner or something so I think that's actually a super mature decision to make and a lot of like uh, I didn't make that decision for one reason or another and you know I would have loved to go on to trek for a little while and and learn from a new bunch of people or, or another team similar to that so uh, to have the opportunity as well is is great so if, I really wish her the best and thank you Brody I'm really excited to see how her career evolves as well agreed I think for for Brody, she's going to be really missed on FDJ, and they've picked up two new riders for next year. Gladys Verholst, the really strong young rider who is on Lacole Wahoo now and had a really good Tour de France, and then Lowe's Adahist, who's the uh, Zwift eSports world champion from 2021, who obviously you've got to have really good numbers to to win the E world championships. And she, she was, she has kind of an interesting situation because she was on Park Hotel Valkenberg in 20, I believe it was 2019 or 2018. And then she couldn't find a team for the following year. So she just posted her numbers on Twitter and asked if anybody wanted to pick up someone with her power numbers. And, uh, it didn't work, but now she's going to ride for FDJ next year. So an interesting move by them. They're not really a team that has a lot of association with, um, with Zwift. There are other teams that do. So it's, that was kind of an interesting decision by them, but I think they need power. So it's a good move. Yeah. She, that, that's maybe not the, uh, maybe not the obvious destination for, yeah, Zwift rider because it's definitely a lot more teams have a lot of more connection, but, um, yeah, especially supporting their climbers, they need kind of that powerhouse that can ride on the front of the peloton. It was interesting thinking about kind of, you know, going straight from talking about Trek to FDJ. I think it's interesting their approaches to building their rosters and that Trek love experience and they have such an experienced rider, uh, roster and in signing Brody and Sprat, like they're just, and even Lisa Klein as well, they're just adding to that even more. Whereas FDJ love signing young and fresh uh, riders. And, it, you know, Gladys Verhulst is an experienced rider, but she's not at the level of, you know, someone who's been doing it for years and years. And it's interesting, these kind of two approaches, and, and they're both teams that do really, really well um, with very different rosters. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And especially um, it will be interesting to see how FDJ get on without Brody. I know she's a little bit of a road captain in that team and I think she keeps the team really motivated and also organized in the races um which is really what you need when you have loads of young riders like this so it will be yeah I'm kind of very 
keen to see who steps into that role at FDJ and keeps all these new and talented, but ultimately somewhat unexperienced riders kind of in check in those races, especially when you've got riders like, you know, if you have Cavalli and Etrup Ludwig on the same team, you have to balance those together and it's good to have a leader there that can kind of make decisions in the race situation. So yeah, that's kind of one thing that FDJ are definitely losing in Brody and we'll be hoping to to replicate to kind of really get the most out of riders like Behulst and the rest of their team. They're also losing Amelia Fallen. So they're really losing their two biggest um lead, like yeah, captains on the road. So that's maybe not a great thing, but we've been critical of them in the past and they've exceeded our expectations. So we'll and see. They have just re-signed Grace for another couple of years. So I think that they want to keep her as a winner. And I think she has the ability to to be a good leader in the team and, and to find that middle ground. And yeah, I think that they they want to have some good powerhouses around her for some of those classics and semi-classics that she's pretty amazing at. I would just hate to see her thrown into a team captain role and lose out on being able to win races because sometimes the two don't come, like you can't do both sometimes. Mm. And for Grace, I think she she is a winner. Um, she's had some incredible results in the past and she she didn't have as good of a year this year on FTJ, but that's, I mean, she still had a, an incredible year. She still won some some good Races, so I think that for her, I yeah, I don't, I want her to develop as a rider. I'm scared that that would affect her ability to win. Mm. Good point. We'll see. Well, we'll see. They, they'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, so we can kind of wrap this up. I said it was going to be a short episode, but we're still pushing like 55 minutes at this point. Um, one of the kind of major talking points from last week was an interview that Evie Richards did. And I think that we want to talk about that and everything that was within that interview, but I want to wait for Amy and Lauren to come back. Um, cause I think that their insight will be really valuable in that discussion. So to close out the episode, for one, I forgot that Tilda has on the ground recording from the cross country race. So I think we should throw to that and then it ends kind of abruptly. But if anybody watched the men's cross country race, it's because Amy had to run off um, and hang out with Sam, be there for Sam. So there is like an abrupt end, but we covered the cross country. So let's throw to that recording on the ground. I was going to introduce that clip before it started, but as soon as the riders were coming up the hill, the noise was way too much, as you would have heard. But that was the very first lap of the elite women's race. Pauline Ferrand-Provo was already attacking up the climb with Yolanda Neff behind her and Loana Lecomte just behind the Swiss rider. They're going early on this one. We've got 90 minutes of racing, but it seems flat out from the go. So yeah, we'll check back in when we know more. Thank you.
Um, yes, so as you can hear, we did not finish that recording for obvious reasons, but yeah, uh, Pauline Ferron Prevot attacked and stayed away forever. The one thing that we didn't get to and that I was trying to teach Amy about all weekend is the downhill. Um, obviously, we spoke about it uh, last week on our little preview and it's very different from cross country. But yeah, that was practically the only thing over the weekend that uh, the French didn't dominate. Um, and I do, if, you, if you've never watched it, it's really good to go back and watch a little bit of that. So that was the elite race was won by Valley Hull, um, her first elite title after being junior world champion twice. Um, she just pulled out the bag on the day. And the junior race was, yeah, a little bit of a weird one. Um, three of the big favourites had really off days. So Phoebe Gale and Gracie Hemstreet were just off the pace. And then Isabella Yankova, the defending champion, crashed um, and couldn't defend her title. And so we ended up with a Kiwi winner, um, Jenna Hastings, who took the title in, yeah, pretty impressive fashion and on the bike that we love so much, this little lightning queen decal bike. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really great weekend at Worlds and I, I'm sad that we don't have Amy here to talk about it, but um, it was a weekend of great racing, both in the cross country and the downhill. And it's just, there's just one more round of the World Cup left this weekend. So if any of it caught your fancy, I would definitely recommend tuning in to Val de Sole at the weekend. And it'll be, is this the last one that will be on Red Bull TV? Yes, very, very sad. Um, yeah, we will miss that. And yeah, I will not make comment on the GCN coverage this weekend, but they have a few I months. I will, to... it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the world championships and it was just like, for one, the app was broken. So it was just like stuck on one screen mm. and the commentary was all jumpy it was terrible i was really disappointed i'm not i have no problem making comment i was disappointed yeah i i really hope they can kind of improve that for next year but i think the thing that worries me is that because they've got the rights they don't they don't have to worry about it being good because they know that we're all gonna have to watch it on gcn and Eurosport and discovery but yeah i hope they can pull that together maybe I, maybe worlds was a little bit of like a test for them and they'll learn some lessons it's an interesting test all right. So also this week and this weekend, we've got the CMAC ladies tour, the next round of the women's world tour. It's a six day stage race. The first three stages are pretty flat and basically every stage has, except for the time trial, but also kind of has some element of circuit racing, which we love. So the first three stages are flat. Stage four has a circuit that includes five climbs. One of them is the Cowberg. So kind of iconic and it looks brutal. Stage five is a time trial and stage six is another hilly kind of like figure eight ish type circuit. There's one big circuit that they do, I think 14 times and then a small one that they do six times. I wrote a preview on cyclingtips.com, so you can check that out with all of the maps and everything. Um, but yeah, world, the, the world tour is back is continuing. I feel a lot of bike racing fatigue. I think we all feel bike racing fatigue. It's been a lot of bike racing this year. It seems like more bike racing this year than there's ever been. I keep forgetting that there's like a men's race going on at the same time right now. Like not a small one, but <laughs> just a grand tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the CMAC ladies tour, I mean, if you're going to tune in 
to any of the stages. I think stage four is going to be really exciting. Stage four and stage six um, are both going to be really exciting. And we will see. It's another interesting lineup for this race. The first three stages, I mean, Webus is there. So it'll be um, basically who can beat her in a sprint. And then there's, yeah, there's like this mix of riders there that like FDJ hasn't brought a single one of their leaders. Uh, I used quotes, but we're to, this is an audio format. Um, <laughs> SD works has Chantal Vandenbroek black, but other than that, like they brought Ashley Moman Passio, who doesn't really strike me as a rider who would, uh, like see this race and be like, ah, oh, yes, that's the one for me. And, um, and Trek has Ellen Van Dyke, and then a bunch of, uh, then some of their, their other like younger riders. Plus they've got Chloe Hosking and, uh, Amelie Dederickson. So it's the whole, the whole lineup is fascinating and it'll, I think it'll be a lot similar, uh, tactics to what we saw at Plue. Just like, well, as we get into this latter half of the year, the domestiques and young riders kind of have an opportunity to fight for the win because they've been riding for their leaders all season long. And I think CMAC and also the Sarah Does It Challenge by La Vuelta are both going to be races where we see, uh, without Van Vluten, obviously, but we'll get to that later. The, yeah, kind of those riders get an opportunity. Do you guys have fatigue? I have <laughs> so much fatigue. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm gearing up first to cover all six days of the CIMAC tour. So I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes, the excitement. <laughs> it just feels a little bit like how, it, yeah, I am looking forward to it. And you know, I love a stage race, but it's funny with these races that have loads of sprints and Lorena is going to be there. You think, oh, okay. It's a question of how many of them is she going to win? Yeah. It's like, okay, I'll write the race report now and then just tweak <laughs> it when the time comes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I mean, for the European Championships, she was almost beat. Um, she almost got beat by by Elisa Balsamo, who had a better lead out. Like, the the situation was, um, I guess, neither of you were there when I had Allison Jackson on. Wait, was this later on that we were talking about the way to beat Lorena Weavis is with... Lauren was there. Lauren was there. Yeah, the way to beat Lorena Weavis is just with a better lead out. And like with ST work, she won't have as good of a lead out next year. But with DSM, their entire team is geared towards leading her out. And uh, and I think that Italy at the European Championships, like they capitalized on that. They had they had a better lead out for Balsamo and she almost won. But when you see the overhead, like Weavis was farther back, but just like was way faster <laughs> so yeah anyway six days of bike racing coming up and we will be back next week hopefully with our full crew because it's it's more fun this way but thank <laughs> you guys for joining me that was still fun yeah it was it was fun it was great mm-hmm.